So this morning we are looking at Philippians 1. We just started uh, the series in Philippians. We are looking um, just at the very beginning this morning, the greeting. We covered the intro, uh, an overview of the book of Philippians last week. And um, if you were here, we said that the theme, the overall theme that that Paul is speaking to is the theme of joy. And, and the theme comes up not because Paul seeks to address the topic of joy. He doesn't say, hey guys, let me tell you, here's how you ought to be joyful, or here's Christians ought to have joy. But rather, Paul speaks to a bunch of other topics. He speaks to one of the themes that we said was uh, the gospel of Christ. And he speaks to, to the gospel and, and remarking upon the gospel and what, what God has done for us in Christ. And then the second theme that he kind of addresses is community in Christ. And he's really seeking to address this break of unity within the church. There's some conflict and there's some specific people that he calls out by name. He calls out... Um, Two women, Eudia uh, and Syntyche, who, who uh, have been in division, and he calls them out most likely because their uh, quarrel and their conflict has become public, and so he's addressing it in a public manner. But there's also some other uh, divisions that exist within the church and some, some conflict, and so Paul is seeking to kind of write to address that. And his, his, uh, his, key, his, his uh, solution to addressing that is to have joy in Christ. And as I said, he doesn't really write to it specifically, but he'll, he'll, he'll say, we want to have Christian unity, and the way that he goes about it is by demonstrating the joy that he has in Jesus. And so before um, Paul gets into talking about unity, he lays the groundwork for it in his greeting. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. He's going to give us this this great groundwork in his words, but then also in his actions. And that's something that we want to be careful to do. As we have just finished the book of James, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, we saw in the book of James that you can't just have good doctrine, you have to have good practice. Doctrine and practice have to go together. It has to be both, uh, has to be both word and deed. We have to be hearers of the word and doers. We have to do both together. And so it's not just enough to be a really great listener and a really great hearer and have good doctrine, but you also have to practice it. You have to let your life reflect what it is that you're claiming to live. And so here in our text this morning, Paul will kind of get to this idea of joy, and it's built upon the work of Christ. If you notice in our first two verses here, Paul will repeat, as we read through it, Paul will repeat the name Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus three times. He's, he's rooting his, his theme not just around joy, but joy in Christ and unity in Christ and the gospel of Christ. And so everything that Paul does is centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he wants us to have not just joy in this temporal sense. We often connect that to uh, things like happiness, which are based on circumstances, but rather a, an, a great joy, a deep satisfaction in Jesus. And, and uh, Peter speaks to this in his, uh, in his letter here. In 1 Peter 1, verse 8 and 9, he says this, Though you have not seen him speaking of Jesus, though you have not seen him, and this is true of us, 
You love him. You haven't seen him, but you love him. Though you do not see, uh, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter's remarking upon this type of joy that we ought to have. It says that we should rejoice with joy, that we should have this joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because of the salvation that has been given to us through the work of Jesus. And so Paul's going to get to that in these first two verses. And so let's read them together. We'll ask the Lord to uh, speak to us this morning and we'll hit it. So verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we want you to speak to us this morning, and so open our eyes to glean from your word. We know, Lord, we can do nothing without you. We're wholly dependent upon you to minister to us. Lord, we're desperate for you to show up and to to call our hearts to action. Lord, we want your word to go forth this morning and find good soil. Lord, and we want to bear good fruit, Lord, not for our glory, but for yours. And so help us to receive this with gladness. Lord, show us the importance of unity and joy in Christ this morning. We love you. Amen. So Paul, writing to the Philippian church, he starts off with... You know, his very simple greeting. He starts off, Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul most likely includes Timothy here in this greeting because Timothy was most likely the secretary for Paul. As Paul dictated this letter, Timothy there, he wrote it down and uh, captured it in writing for Paul. And he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, on the first kind of outlook, this doesn't really seem real remarkable because, you know, it's like Paul kind of always has a similar intro, a similar style. When you look through his books, he has similar wording. But here, this is a huge departure from Paul's greeting. Throughout the books of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Titus, Paul, in in the introduction to each of those books, he refers to himself as an apostle or an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's claiming some sort of authority. He's claiming that that Christ has put him in a position to lead the church and to, to be over these churches and to speak as an ambassador here. But here, in, um, he calls himself a servant. In other letters, when he writes, when he mentions Timothy, he calls him Timothy, our brother. You'll see that in, in the different letters that he writes when he's ever, whenever he's remarking upon Timothy's presence. It's, you know, our good brother Timothy, or, or uh, he's always mentioned there just kind of as a side note. But here, Paul and Timothy are mentioned together. And because, because of that, it's quite unusual in our text this morning. He uses the same title for both him, himself, and Timothy. He calls them uh, themselves bond slaves or, or slaves or servants is what he's getting at. Now, in a Roman colony such as Philippi was, some slaves had, um, you know, they had pretty menial routine work. It was like... You go through, super mundane, repetitive. There were, there were jobs for slaves that were real basic. And then there were also jobs for slaves where they were entrusted with great responsibilities and, and civil service. 
But at the end of the day, no matter what task you were entrusted with as a, a servant or a slave, those both meaning the same thing, at the end of the day, the fact of the matter was that you were doing the work of another, the will of another, and it didn't matter how important your task, you were still subject to the will of another. And that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. The, the word that he uses here for servant is the word doulos. It means it's, it's commonly used throughout the New Testament, and it means devoted to uh, another or a, a servant, devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. And this is the type of slavery that is seen um, throughout uh, the Bible. It's not the type of slavery that we see throughout like the Civil War, where people worked um, for unending terms as slaves, but rather people would work a debt here, and they would be taken care of well. They would be, uh, you'll see that throughout Scripture, some slaves, you know, they, they served in their master's house. They lived there. They were well cared for. Uh, slaves were able to own you know, other servants, they were able to have wages and families, and they, it wasn't the same type of slavery that we're looking at today, but rather um, it was a willing slavery that people put themselves into often to pay off a debt that they owed or to pay for something. And so here, this person, this, this servant, this idea that Paul's trying to communicate to us is it's someone who's dedicated to the interests of, uh, of another person to the effect that you disregard your own interests. Now, by calling himself a servant here, both Paul and Timothy, he does a couple things. Paul puts himself on the same level as the Philippians, the thing that he's going to call them to, to be servants, to have unity. Paul puts himself on the same level that, uh, that he's calling the Philippians to. Secondly, he's reminding them that they are redeemed of Christ. He's reminding the church that we've been redeemed from Christ, and it wasn't by your own work, but that you've been bought by the blood of Christ. That you didn't do anything to get there, that you've been, you've been made his own through his work. He's leveling the playing field, essentially, by saying, you know, I'm not necessarily over you, and there's nobody in the church who, who is high and exalted, but rather we are all one in desperate need of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're all on the same playing field. And then uh, thirdly, he's reminding them, by calling them a servant, he's reminding them of his condition. Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians from a jail cell. He is a servant himself while in chains. He's a servant in chains. He's reminding them that even though he's in difficulty, he's able to serve the Lord well. And he'll remark upon that in the letter to the Philippians. He'll say that, you know, the palace guard has heard the gospel, that the, the word of God is going forth and his message is not hindered, but rather is moving forward. And then uh, lastly, Paul is placing himself in the company of others who have faithfully served the Lord. The servant, the word there, is used as a title for Moses, for Joshua, for David. They were all called individually, individually servants of the Lord. Each one had earned that title to be called one who, who served the Lord. And later, in chapter 2, Paul will use Jesus as an example of a servant, a bond slave. He, he will speak that Jesus has made himself a bond slave, and he was obedient to death on the cross. He was obedient to the will of the Father. He was about obeying 
another's wishes. As the Lord sent him to the cross, as God the Father sent him to the cross, he was faithful to obey as a bond slave. And so Paul puts himself in good company, and he's setting the tone to call the Philippians into this same type of servanthood, this same type of, of lifestyle. And what Paul's essentially saying here is that those who are servants are subject to the will of the one who owns them. And so if Christ is your Lord, as Paul points out there, he says in the beginning, servants of Christ Jesus, if Christ is the Lord, then we are in fact his servants. And of course, in kind of the American lifestyle, a lot of us have a hard time with like that idea. We're very individualistic. We like to have like our own everything, you know, everything likes to, it's like my way. It's like the whole like, you, you can do everything custom. There's, there's not a great community feel. It's everyone wants to have this great individual or be known by their own merits. But here, it, we're called to serve another and not to be known for our work, but for our faithfulness to the one that we serve. And, and a lot of us have difficulty with that. It's a natural thing. Because as sinful people, as those who are in the flesh, our flesh wants to have notoriety and fame, and we want to be known, and we want to make ourselves glorious before others. But if we want to have the benefits of Christ, we, can't, we have to be under his lordship. We cannot have the benefits of a relationship with Jesus without being under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you want the benefits of his work, your, your way has to die. Your will and your way and the things that you want have to be put to death in order that you might serve the, your master. Now, Paul describes himself as a servant, a, a slave. And the way that he describes this, it's on a, a sort of a, you know, a vertical and horizontal axis. First, as slaves, we're called to serve Christ. We are indebted to serve the Lord who is our master. We want to do what he's doing and be a part of what he's a part of and, and, and understand how he's working in our community and in our city and in our church and with each other. And we want to find out what's going on there and we want to join him in that. We don't want to come to the Lord and say, here's all of our super sweet plans. Here's what we think is a really great idea. And you should make this happen because we have a plan and you have to see through this. And on paper, it works out really well. God doesn't want us to budget our ideas for him so he can approve it like a committee and say, all right, sounds good, go for it. We're to come to the Lord and to be found seeking his will and find out what he's doing and join him in it. It's way better because it's always successful if you join the Lord in his will. And so we want to be faithful to that. And so the, the relationship here of a servant is both, is both vertical, our first and primary responsibility, but it's also horizontal. And that's something that we forget. When we're called to be bond slaves of Christ, we often forget the fact that that also calls us to be submissive servants of fellow believers. And that promotes unity. When you put others before yourselves, when you esteem others as greater than you, it's going to lead to unity. You're placing the welfare of others above yourselves. And that's what 
ultimately, Paul argues in chapter 2 when he talks about Jesus being a bondservant. Jesus didn't need to do that. He put our welfare above his and came and made himself in the form of human flesh and suffered the death of the cross for our sake. And so when we are going to serve one another, when we're devoted to one another and we're devoted to Christ, it automatically causes us to be devoted to one another. It pushes us into relationship with others. When we see Christ's example as the ultimate bondservant who suffered at the hands of men for our sake, even though he didn't have to, and we see that example and we want to live that example and rightly serve the Lord, then it will also push us into that relationship with others. Now, let me also make kind of some side notes there, because when we think about serving one another, we also attach serving one another to qualifications of things like, is it, will it cost too much? Is it convenient? You know, do I have time for this? When you serve anybody, you never have time, and it's never cheap, and it's never easy. So if you're going to try to serve people, you're going to try to go out of your way to help someone, it costs Jesus, you know, his form. He put off his, his glory that was due his name. He, it cost him his life. It wasn't cheap for him to come and do this. He sacrificed greatly. And so when we serve, our gut, our natural reaction is to kick against that because it's going to be costly. It's going to call us into an uncomfortable position. But we need to, to follow in that trail that Jesus blazed. When we see, you know, as people would march into battle and follow their commander, they would have a banner. And we follow a blood-stained banner into battle, and we will follow Christ into that. And as he has blazed a trail of suffering and service, we will follow him in that. And that's the way that we want to go into following Christ and, and how we should serve one another. And so we, when we serve one another well, when we are able to put aside our own purposes, our own selfishness, when we stop thinking about, uh, you know, things in, in our lives as like, how can this benefit me most greatly instead of, and start thinking in terms of how can we serve others most faithfully and how can we glorify God through our thoughts and actions and lifestyle and, and how can we glorify God with our resources that he's given us. Those things will in turn lead to us expressing the fact in that act that we are devoted to Christ. It, it demonstrates that, that servanthood to Christ when we love and serve others well. It shows and testifies to the fact that we have been faithful as he has been faithful and as he has enabled us to do that. Now, Paul kind of gets into his view on relationships here. And this is kind of what he wants to hammer on. He's trying to hammer on this. When believers in Christ, when the Philippian church, when our church, Sanctuary, when, when we freely and joyfully accept that Christ is our all in all, when we make him our Lord, when we become his servants, we will be united and effective in our service of him. It brings unity when we are united around the person and work of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. If we're trying to address surface needs and we're trying to deal with things that, that seem fun to us or, or things that seem easy, those things are going to lead to divisions because someone's going to want to have like a Christmas choir and other people are going to hate choirs and there's going to be problems. But when we're united around Christ, you know, then we're not going to have that sort of problem because we want to see Christ exalted. When, when someone is, has a great passion for social justice and wants to see the needs of the poor and the homeless met and that is their end goal, then there's going to be, 
there's going to be a great passion and push behind that. But if it's not rooted in Christ, it's going to create division and problems. But if we do it out of a love and passion for Jesus, a joy in Jesus, wanting to see Jesus exalted in people, and Jesus made more famous by people meeting Jesus and, and enjoying Jesus together as a community, then that's going to be successful as we go out in mission together. And so we want to see that happen through our pursuit of relationship with Christ. And so our outlook needs to be not how can we get our needs met or our wants met, but how can we serve the body most faithfully? How can we spend ourselves for others? And, and oftentimes these, these conflicts and disunity happens uh, you know, the Bible tells us when there's envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, when those things come up, it's because there's, uh, you know, we've taken our eyes off of Christ. We, we're self-seeking and we're looking to advance our own causes or our, our own comfort. But we want to be about what Jesus is doing. Now, he goes on to remark in the next portion. He says, let me lost my spot here. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus, there it is again, So, uh, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, some of your translations might say to all, or to the holy saints, or to, uh, it might have a, to the holy church. There's different translations, but um, the word there is encompassed in the word saints. It means he's writing to the people, the church at large, people who have been redeemed. They're bought by the blood of Christ. They're separated from evil. They're consecrated to fulfill God's purposes. Uh, their holiness in, is not a part of just having the word holy, but in te- uh, it's a part of their unity and with Christ. And, and when we're united with Christ and then we're united around Christ, we're going to experience a collective holiness, a collective unity as a body here. And that's what Paul is speaking to. So he writes to all the saints. And when he does that, he's repeating, he's kind of giving this repetition there to, to all, to this holy group, this body. He, he's writing to a, a big group here. And, and when he's doing this, He's making sure that people know that he's writing not to address these small factions. Like, you know, to those of you who are with Judea, I write this. To those of you who are with Syntyche, you get this. You know, to those of you who have sided with the elders, here's what you get. Paul says, to all the church, you guys should be united. And so he's laying this groundwork for it. And so those people who were, who were reading this letter, who would be the ones who are causing division or who, in, who are in division, they wouldn't miss this. Paul wanted them to understand this. And, and it's a theme that Paul brings up constantly. In, in the book of Romans, Paul says in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So control what you are able to control. Live in a humble way. Live so that others, uh, you know, don't be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony with all. And so that's what Paul's theme is. He's kind of coming back to it, wanting to, to see this accomplished. And then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be in Christ? This is going to come up. We talked about this as one of the themes uh, throughout the book of Philippians. This is going to come up again and again and again throughout the book. To be in Christ is 
going to have different meanings in different contexts in the book of Philippians. It's, and so we have to examine it new each time we come to it. As we go through the book, we're going to have to address it each time that we arrive at a passage mentioning this theme of being in Christ. But in this specific portion here, it means to be in the Christian community where, where, where Christ is. Just as the church was addressed to being at Philippi, it was the church that was in Philippi, so the church is telling us where the church is. The community is belonging to Christ. It's important for us to remark upon that. And so he's giving us both uh, social you know, and, and geographic locations for the church. You're both a group of people who are neighbors. You're, you're just regular people who are living together as neighbors in a city, in a neighborhood, in a, in a community, but you're also brought together by Christ. You're in Christ. And so he's saying your life is centered together beyond things that bind you together socially in your neighborhood, things that are, are beyond, you know, the, the civic nature of your community, but rather it's also brought together by the work of Christ who has bought you. You've been all made his own people. And so you have community together in Christ. And so as we think about this, and as the Philippians read it, they would have to encounter the question, like, we're in this city, we are residents of Philippi, we're residents of Berkeley, but where are we in our Christian community? Are we in Christ? Do we belong to Christian community and not just belong as, as those who Christ has saved, but where are we acting in the body of Christ? And Paul elaborates on this in, uh, in the letters to the Corinthians and talking about the importance of all the members coming together and playing different roles. But we want to stop and think about that. We want to re just remark upon that for a moment and, and cause the Holy Spirit to ask, uh, to respond to us in that question. You know, where are we in Christian community? Have we found uh, a group of people that will keep us accountable and love us and serve us and, and are, have similar passions to see Jesus exalted and glorified? And so we want to uh, think about that. And then Paul goes on to remark to two groups here. He says, to the over... Or, to, those, to all who are in Christ, with the overseers and deacons. Now, quickly, the overseers and deacons, those are two groups, they are spoken of in Scripture. Simply put, uh, overseers are pastors, elders, bishops. Those terms are used interchangeably throughout the Bible. Deacons are those who, uh, it's an official office, but those who would serve um, in sort of... Uh, for lack of a better description quickly, an assistance sort of way and a practical helps to the church. It's an official title. You can read about it in 1 Timothy 3, Ephesians 4. You can read both about both of those titles. There's qualifications laid out there for those who qualify to be pastors, elders, overseers, bishops. Those are all being the same one. And then deacons uh, in, in that level. Th both of those qualifications are laid out there, and you can read those um, in 1 Timothy 3 and Ephesians 4. And so Paul is writing to these the leadership of the church. He's writing to those, and he's addressing these church leaders because they're going to be the ones who are probably going to have to go and deal with the conflict. He, he's writing to them and addressing them, and they're going to have to deal with this disunity in the church. They're going to be the ones who read this letter aloud to the people. Now, I also want you to note something. Paul 
is also specific to mention that these overseers and deacons are not over the church, but they're with the church. They're not in charge of the church, but rather they are members of the church. They are with the church. Leaders are a part of the church and are to serve together with the church. They're the lead servants. They're not separate. They're on the same level as everybody else. That's why Paul starts in demonstration. Because if you're a leader, if you've ever led anything, and people aren't giving you like your proper title, you know, you kind of get your feathers ruffled a little bit like, I'm supposed to be in charge. Like, you know, people are supposed to make a big deal about me. But, and so I'm no doubt when the overseers were got up to read this and they're like, with the, wait a second. He's not giving us like any special recognition here. Like, good job, guys. You guys are doing a great job. You're over it. You guys, over this church, you guys have been faithful givers to me, you know, out in the mission field. No doubt, like, it was just kind of like, all right, whatever. But Paul leads the way in that he calls himself a servant. If anyone should have given, should have received recognition, it was Paul. But he says in the beginning, let me show you the way. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And so he's leading the way even for the leadership of this church by saying that he's a servant. And then he's saying with the overseers and the deacons. And so the leaders of the church are to be a part of the church. They're not separate from the church. They're not uh, anything special or, you know, more glorious than any other part of the body. They're simply a, a specific gifting and tool that is used at that specific moment that is no more valuable than any of the other tools that God and giftings that God has given to members of the body of Christ so that we might serve him well. And so he starts off here in, with his actual greeting in verse 2. Let's read it together. He says, here's his actual greeting once he kind of gets past his opening. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's as far as we're going to get this morning, just through this verse. He starts off by remarking uh, uh, with two words that matter a whole lot. But before we get to that, I want to highlight one word that he, he uses at the end of that sentence there in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Philippi, as we said, was a Roman colony. And Paul had spent time there. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was beaten without a trial. And so it was a huge deal. Roman citizenship and the, all things that pertain to Rome were a huge deal. Massive deal. And one of the main religious uh, cultures there, the, the most prevalent one was imperial worship. And a part of Roman uh, culture, the emperor was seen as a god. And, and the words, or Caesar there, he would, he would demand both political and religious allegiance. You had to both worship him and be a part of his system. And only Caesar was to be called Lord. And so when Paul is writing, he's giving his first little thought to refocusing the mind of the Philippians and calling Jesus Lord. He's using this word here that is only to belong to Caesar and calling Jesus that. So that way when he gets to that topic of citizenship there, which was important in a colony like, like Philippi, he's speaking of the citizenship of heaven and the importance of that. And he'll draw these parallels. And so Paul kind of gets in his first dig there and rightfully ascribes the title of Lord to Jesus. He's reminding them of who they truly serve. 
and, and who they ought to be focused upon. And so he leaves that little remark there with Christ. But he opens it up with uh, some common greetings. He, he starts off with a Greek greeting. He starts off by saying, grace to you. Now, in common Greek writing, they, would, they wouldn't say grace to you, but rather they would open up with words of greetings that would be, sound very similar to this. But Paul kind of hijacks that, flips it in his own way, and makes it his own by applying this title of grace. And it's speaking of Christ's work, what he's done for us, and, and that something, his work upon the cross, and that we could not have earned it, but it has been fully given and, uh, to us as a gift. It's been something that has been delivered to us because of Christ's faithfulness and not because of ours and not because of anything that we have done, but it has been all Christ's work. And then he says, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in this second greeting, he's responding with a Jewish greeting. When he speaks of the word peace there, it doesn't just mean absence of conflict. It doesn't just mean like no wars are happening, chill out. You know, what he's speaking of here is a deep rest, a deep satisfaction, a, a deep rest in Christ. It, it, the similar word that we get this from, it, it, it's similar with, uh, with Sabbath when we rest. It's similar to what happened after uh, God created in, in uh, the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1, when he created all things. And on the seventh day, he rested. He rested not because he was like, it was so, uh, he rested not because there wasn't anything else he could do, but that he was so thoroughly satisfied with his work that there, it was done. He was so completely and thoroughly satisfied that he, there was nothing else to do. He just rested there. And it's built up in Jesus being our rest. And that through his grace, through his work upon the cross, we find true rest in him. And so we find that peace uh, through Christ. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 2, verse 14. You probably want to write this down to come back to it later because it's just an epic passage. Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, right after speaking about that grace and peace that's, you know, that we can't boast in, it's not of ourselves, but that's given as a free gift of God, he comes to verse 14, he says, speaking of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Listen to this unity language as he gets in here, speaking of this unity in Christ and this community around him. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Again, there's that peacemaker through the work of the cross. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, and he came and preached peace to those who were far off, and peace to those who were near, and through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's so much unity language there around the work of Christ giving peace and true rest to those who need it, and also this unity around that work, it, unity through the, the work of Christ's cross and that he's torn down a wall and made two one and he's, he's come together and given us both access in one spirit to the Father. There's so much surrounding here and that's what Paul is getting at. He's essentially summarizing his whole theology, everything that he's ever going to say in his greeting. 
He, his greeting is as grace to you. It's the, speaking of the work of Christ upon the cross. And peace, that deep rest and satisfaction in, in, in Christ's work. And when he was on the cross and he cried, it is finished. That work was finished and complete. There was no more work to be done. Just as God rested in the garden, so Jesus rested upon the cross. There was nothing else to be done. And there we find that deep satisfaction when we rest in him. And he tells us where we get it. He, Paul's message, his summary of theology is grace and peace from God our Father, who is the giver of those things, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We experience the peace of God because the grace of God was there up, uh, upon the cross in that work in Christ's resurrection, in redeeming, excuse me, in, for our justification there. We experience the grace and peace of God because of Christ's work. And so Paul's whole of his theology is kind of summed up in this, this little greeting that he gives. So that way when we come to the rest of it, the Philippians won't be confused and say, what, what are we to find unity around? He's told us, uh, you know, ten times in two verses, like, here's what's going on, here's what's important. Jesus, 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 grace, peace, you know, you need to find unity around these things. He's spoken of himself as a servant. He'll reference Jesus as the ultimate servant. He'll call the leadership of the church to serve, to deal with this situation, to find unity. We have an idea of what Paul's getting at. And that's what we want to strive for both in our church and we want to glean as we run through the book of Philippians and, and look at it week by week. We want to see that grace, that gospel of Christ, the peace of God there. We want to see these things uh, in a way that lead us. When we, when, we, when we see them, when we're full of them, when we see the faithfulness of God, then we'll have the same, uh, we'll have the same joy that Paul had. We'll, have, we'll come back to that and we'll be filled and we'll be so thoroughly satisfied with Jesus that he will be our ultimate desire, our ultimate treasure, that we will have joy in him, and that's what we want to have. And like Paul, later in chapter 4, we'll be able to say that no matter what situation that we're in, we'll, we are able to be content because Jesus is our treasure and not things that ultimately break down and, and will fail us. We won't have built our life upon idols, but, but upon he who is everlasting, who has redeemed us. And we want to ask the Lord to cultivate in us this heart this deep love and desire for jesus i just want more and more and more and we want to do it in community together and so because this book is about christian unity because it's about having joy in him the cool thing about it is when we get into community group it's hopefully it's going to get real and then we'll get to like wrestle this stuff together about like why aren't we having joy why aren't why are we having trouble with with finding deep satisfaction in Christ. And we'll get to work these things out together so that we develop a sense of Christian community in a way that we're able to be a part of Jesus' mission in this city to help more people meet him so that more people will glorify him. And we just want to see that continue and we want to be faithful with this. And so let's ask the Lord now as we pray this in, we'll ask the Lord to work within us, to help us with this. It's not easy Conflict is never easy. That's why most, whenever there's conflict, most people just run away. But because we have the cross, whenever there's conflict, we can run to the cross because the cross is a unifying source. Whenever there's difficulty and disunity and there's problems, as Christians, we don't run away. We run to the cross together because there we find 
that things that are broken are healed. Those that come to Jesus are made, not, they're not just fixed, but they're made new. And so we want to be faithful to do that together. We need the Lord to do it. It's like incredibly difficult. It's going to be hard to apply this stuff. And so let's ask the Lord to work within us and, and help us with our study in, in the book of Philippians. Lord, we're thankful for your word and that you've given us just this rich letter full of the gospel, full of exhortation to community in Christ. And we need your help. Lord, we can't do it without you, Lord. As you told us in uh, John 15, Lord, we can do nothing apart from you. And Lord, we don't even want to try. Lord, there's only community. There's only friendship surrounded um, Lord, by your presence. And so we need you. Lord, we want to be faithful to you, Lord, and not to anything else, not to culture, not to um, trying to grow our church or to sacrifice anything, Lord, that would take away from our faithfulness to you. And so we want you to have your way in us. Lord, we struggle as sinful people with having our own selfish desires. And so, Lord, would you help us as we try to be your servants and we try to make your desires our desires. Lord, it's difficult and we're desperate for you to work. Lord, we know we can't do it alone. And so, Lord, we pray that as we study your word, Lord, that you would become more glorious and beautiful to us. Lord, that we would see your work, Lord, is such a blessing. And Lord, we want to respond in worship now. So we pray that you would have your way um, in us, Lord. We pray that you would set our, our minds, attention, and our hearts' affection upon you, Lord, as we worship. We love you. Amen.